John chapter 13. We've been highlighting throughout John the idea of live eternally because of John's use of a Greek word called zoe. It means life, usually combined with the word eternal. And this is a unique kind of life to the Christian. So from the bulletin, I'm going to read our paragraph just that kind of gets all of us oriented no matter where we how many sermons we've heard in John it gets us oriented around the Zoe life of God it says John writes this gospel quote so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name chapter 20 verse 31 when he says that you may have life in this name that word life is Zoe in Greek it differs from bios or biological life. Zoe is God's life, the kind of life that lives forever. It never decays. Though originally assumed to be limited to heaven, John dares us to find Zoe in Jesus today. This is the life God wants us to live right now. A piece of himself within us, a bit of heaven on earth before Jesus returns to the earth. Eternal life is not merely life after death, but also life before death. So live eternally. John is inviting us to experience that life of God in Jesus that makes us his sons and daughters, that we can have not just longevity of life, eternal life, but Zoe life too, depth and quality of life. The kind of life that we would have had in the garden had we not fallen, God can restore that to us, give us a piece of it so that we know where we're going, we're going to be part of the new creation when God makes everything right. That's the life that we can find in Jesus right now. We don't have to wait for that. But he wants us to be full new creations. And so, as this Zoe life enters us and makes us a new creation, John sees Jesus as the creator of this new creation. So he opens up the gospel with, In the beginning. Just like Genesis, but it's for the New Testament. It's for the new creation. In the beginning was the Word. And as God spoke this present creation into being with His Word, Jesus comes as that Word to the old creation to create within it a new creation. And so to fit the narrative, John records of all the miracles Jesus did, he records seven of them. And he calls them signs. He picks seven because these mirror the seven days of creation. This is the new creation. And he calls them signs because they're a specific type of miracle that point to something. As signs do, they point. These signs are pointing those who witness and see it to this new creation and Zoe life that Jesus is bringing to the earth in his ministry. And then just for kicks, to give us another seven, he has seven I am statements of Jesus. The I am where Jesus associates himself as the eternal being God, and he is this for his people. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. And tonight we're going to see his sixth I am. I am the way, the truth, and the life. We are now, tonight, we are, we are sort of shifting gears a little bit in John. Remember, John has two major sections in his gospel. The first book, most scholars call it two books. The first book is the book of signs. That's where all seven of those miracles occur, is in the first book. 
the book of signs. So we see Jesus as the one pointing the way to God's new creation. Book number two is the one we start tonight, chapters 13 to the end. Book number two is known as the book of glory, because this is where Jesus is glorified, and he glorifies God the Father through his death and resurrection, which Jesus calls being lifted up. His crucifixion is being lifted up. Yes, physically he's lifted up from the earth on the cross, but he also sees this as the glorious throne of God being king over the world. A cross is that throne. This is the rather inside out, upside down, backwards way of thinking of glory in the Christian story. So this is now the book of glory. We're now in book two. A couple ways that it changes. Number one, uh, in book one, we had several days happening. Book two, this whole thing, at least up through chapter 19, it's going to be one 24-hour day. And then after chapter 19, a couple days to the resurrection. So this is, this is time slowed way down. We're also going to see uh, tonight, he's going to launch what's called his farewell sermon, his farewell address. And it's going to go from chapters 13 through 17. So we have five chapters in which Jesus is addressing just his 12 disciples. So we've seen in book one, Jesus addressing the masses and the crowds and this message of Zoe for the world. Now he turns his attention to just his 12 and he has a personal private instruction for them. I'm about to leave. This is what you guys need to know so that you can fare well while I'm gone and cope and keep the mission going. So we get to hear Jesus's private words to his own people. Uh, Just to give you a scope. In book one, the word Zoe appeared 50 times and the word love six times. Zoe, remember, meaning life. In this book number two, we see the word love, book one of six times, we see the word love appear 31 times. So while Zoe was the dominant word of book one, love becomes, or agape in the Greek, love becomes the dominant word of book two. So you see the shift, the public announcement to the world, here's Zoe, but now the private message to his personal disciples of love. This is one of the main fruits that should come with the new creation. You know you're part of God's new creation. You know you have his Zoe life dwelling within you and working its way out through you when we have love for one another. That's the fruit that the new creation grows abundantly. So, uh, you're going to see a model of this love tonight. Uh, Jesus is not just talking about love as some sort of sentimental feeling, but as an action, a deliberate action to bring good to other people. So therefore, and C.S. Lewis has a great discussion on this in Mere Christianity, love is not something we feel for each other, it's something we do for each other. I can show love, I can follow the commands of Christ, even if I don't necessarily like a person. The difference is I like the people I have good feelings toward, but I can love even those I have no feelings toward. And that's an important distinction. We are not called to have warm affection for everybody in this room. It's not, frankly, possible sometimes because we're humans and we have differences. Everyone's cold to me, so I know that's obviously... (laughs) Just kidding. But we can make choices that demonstrate the Zoe life and the new creation to each other. 
We can all do that because of God's spirit in us. Okay, so chapter 13, let's get into it. Uh, We're going to see basically two halves. Uh, Jesus is loving his disciples, and then in the second half, he's going to ask them to love each other in the world. So the model, then the mission. So chapter 13, verse 1, let's go. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This is his death eve, right? We have Christmas Eve. We all look forward to the next day. Death eve. This is the night before he dies. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. You might remember when we opened the book of John and we talked about that opening prologue, the first 18 verses of the book, and it said that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, or the more maybe graphic and getting to the point translation of he lived in the neighborhood. Remember that? We talked about he's and the, the animal image for John from early Christianity has always been the eagle. That in, in John, we see Jesus as an eagle coming down from the Father, touches down on earth, and then goes back up to to the Father, like an eagle soaring in the heavens, swooping down and coming back up. And we saw that that's what Jesus does. He becomes flesh. It's a V-shape, leaving the Father, coming to earth, and then going back up. Well, where he touches down on earth, it's like the point of the V. And that's a small little part of history where the cosmic Christ, this grand eternal being, the, the word who was there even at creation and before, actually comes into time and space and touches down on the earth and takes on human flesh and blood and did real things in our midst and spoke real words that actual hear, that actual ear heard, that is a little point in the V. And here now in book two, it opens very similarly to book one. We see Jesus once again in one position as their master and teacher at the head of the table as they're eating. He comes down from that position to become a slave before them. And then it says that he puts the robe back on and goes back to his seat. This is in microcosm the gospel. It's him leaving a place of authority, coming to serve humanity, and then going back to that place. Taking the robe off, the towel on, serving, towel off, robe back on. Heaven, earth, heaven. And so we see here when he's washing the disciples' feet, just a little miniature narrative of the life of Jesus that he did for three years. Here to serve and to wash the feet of all humans. And now he's going to graphically show it to his disciples. You can say to somebody how much you love them, but putting it in this picture speaks more than just saying, I love you. Disciples, just know before I die, I love you. Oh, okay. We love you too. I mean, okay, so the same word was exchanged, but the levels of love were very different. But now by doing this, it speaks volumes. A picture's worth a thousand words, at least in this instance. 
And this would graphically sink in because Jesus here as God is not just doing something that we'd rather not do. He's actually taking on, as our scripture reading before worship said, he's taking on the form of a slave and he's doing something that only slaves did by washing the feet of not just anybody, but his own inferiors. These were his students, his disciples. This is the model of love. Verse six, he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus said, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. So Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Well, suddenly, Peter's white as a sheet. He says to the Lord, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands, my head, dunk me completely. And Jesus said to him, okay, okay, hold on. The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean. And you wonder if he looked at Judas at this point, or if he didn't. But not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that is why he said, not all of you are clean. I have to read this to you. This is from straight up from a commentary that does a lot of the Greek. And it was so great. I have to read this to you. When Peter's refusing the foot washing from Jesus, this is what uh, the author says. He translates it as, never, you're never going to touch my feet. And then he writes this. This is said as strongly as it can be in John's Greek. Bear with this. It's great. With a double negative subjunctive followed by an emphatic prepositional phrase around a heightened personal pronoun. (laughs) I said, all right, brother, I got it. (laughs) So then he kindly translates what all that means for us and says, this is what it would have read. And this is how this author is reading it. Uh, It's going to sound choppy, but it's just a transliteration from the Greek. So Peter's saying, not, not, will you ever wash my feet forever? So there's just like this whole emphatic double negatives, like never, ever, ever is this ever going to happen. So Peter's like adamant, you are not touching my feet. You're not going to humble yourself like that. You are my Lord and master. I cannot have this happen. I just thought that was some great geeky Greek language there. I had to read it to you. So Jesus responds, however, and you think about it, and he says, like, okay, so if I don't do this, you have no part in me. Uh, that's, that's the way we're reading it. But if you think about the essence of what this is saying, it, it, he's saying literally something very powerful like this. To be in my presence, Peter, means to be on the receiving end of my service. In other words, if we aren't letting Jesus serve us, we are not in his presence. We have no part with him. And that is such a slap in the face because we so often get in our human mode and our ego kind of thinks that it's so godly and it comes and brings us to church and says, I've got so many songs of singing to God and I've got such a great attentive ear tonight. I'm actually awake. I didn't overeat. I've got my notepad. Like God's got to be impressed that I am here for him. And the whole time Jesus is like, um, with the towel around his waist, he's like, I'm here for you. 
And to really engage and enter into the presence of Jesus is to let him do the service to us. That's what I see behind that phrase. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Well, Peter obviously gets the point somewhat and complies. Now verse 12, this is now the mission. We've seen the model. 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So in short, do what I did to other people. 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Oh, that's a great way to break up the conversation at the table. All the side conversations stop. They all look around. Who? What? Now you have to really imagine this, right? There's a great feast going on. And the Jews, especially Jesus' disciples coming from a poor area of Galilee, didn't get to eat well all the time. So this was a special event where they have a real good meal. And they're, they're not just sitting. They usually sat, you know, cross-legged on, the, on mats and ate. Uh, eating was never just like a take-forever thing until these moments at a feast where they would actually lie down. So their heads would be at the table, their feet would be going out from the table, and you would lie down on your left arm because your right hand was the clean hand. It didn't take care of business. So you ate with your right hand. So you'd lean on your left hand, and you'd reach over the table, and there's dishes of different things and sauces to dip things in, and so you would just eat casually, and you're talking to people, right? Well, so we have Jesus lying in one spot, and John, or it doesn't say John, but it says the the disciple whom Jesus loved is right next to Jesus. So John's back is against Jesus' chest. That's the picture you have. They're really close, and so they go all around, and Peter's probably across the way a little bit. Peter liked to keep his eye on things. So... Um, when he says, this is, you know, the one, someone's going to betray me, Peter's like, John, John, ask him who? Like trying to be all secretive about this, like nobody can see him waving his hand. And so John just kind of has to like, kind of just roll his head over a little bit and whisper Jesus, who's going to betray you? It's Peter, right? And then Jesus, <laughs> and then Jesus tells John, and now you have to think this isn't out loud. This is just to John. The one I give the bread to will betray me. And then Jesus gives the bread to Judas. So it's sort of this like secret transaction. John gets to find out the inside information, the one right next to Jesus. So then he tells, Simon, uh, he tells Judas, it says, by the way, right there, that verse 27, then after Judas had taken the morsel of bread, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, 
what you are going to do, do quickly. You're going to go kill me, basically. You're going to betray me. Do it quickly. I can't wait to do this mission for the world. Oh, and also, you can't actually betray me until I give you permission to go do so. So go. It's a really good sign there of Jesus' authority. So um, everyone didn't know why Jesus was leaving. They thought that because he was in charge of the money, he was going to go give to the poor, a common tradition during the Passover season. So they had no idea why he left. And then John graphically tells us at the end of verse 30, it was night. It's not going to get any darker than now. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now, this is verse 31, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. And then you start to see everyone's countenance fall like, I don't understand this. <laughs> this is all like, I'm in him, he's in me and I'm in him and he, all of us are in him and uh, so Jesus is telling him, like, look, the glory's coming. This is the book of glory. I'm going to be glorified. Verse 33, little children, get a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews earlier in our gospel, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, this is not a new commandment to love one another. This is as ancient as Leviticus. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. What's new about this commandment is the model with which Jesus showed them the depth of the kind of love he's asking them to give to one another. A new commandment is that you just, you don't just love your neighbor as yourself, but you love your neighbor in the way that I have loved you. Whether that means dying for them or washing people's feet, serving them as a slave, it's just synonymous. It's about giving your life away for others. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now. But you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you've denied me three times. What a way to kill a party. So there's just this somber tone. And so Jesus lifts it back up now. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. And if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. It's sort of confusing because he kind of told them earlier, I'm going somewhere and you won't be able to find me. And I was like, you know the way where I'm going. So Thomas rightfully asked the question. I was confused too. He says, Lord, we don't know the way where you are. We do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, here's I am number six 
I am the way and the truth and the Zoe. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you also would have known my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Now Philip pipes in, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So we get some clarification there. Jesus tells us the way. Look, If you want to get to where I'm going, you want to be the father, you want to inherit Zoe life forever and ever and ever, follow me. I am the way or the path or the road. Those are legitimate translations from the Greek word. Jesus is the path to follow. That's him. Go this way. You walk the way, you're going to find that there's truth on the way and it leads to Zoe life. So I am that way. And if you want to get to the father, there's no other way. Now, he's doing for them, he's telling them, this is the path to take. What he's going to do now for the second half of chapter 14 is tell them, here's a guide to help you on that path. All right? I'm not going to leave you to figure it out on your own. I have a trail guide. He's going to help you walk this road, help you walk this path so that you're going to understand the truth and the Zoe in the way, okay? But first, there's this very troubling three verses in 12 to 14. Truly, truly, I say to you, means I'm dead serious about this, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do. Because I am going to the Father... Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Wow. Let's deal with the easy part first. Whatever you ask for in my name, this I will do. So that does not mean, hey, everyone, I'm going to give you a little bit of hocus pocus. You say this incantation in the name of Jesus we pray, then whatever you ask for is going to happen. You now know the secret formula. That's not what he's saying. In my name refers to, if you ask for anything according to my will, or according to my character, or according to my nature, according to my purpose, those are all the things that encompass someone's name. So no, you don't literally have to say the words, in Jesus' name we pray. You don't have to say those very verbal pronunciations. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, pray according to my purpose and will. If you pray in that, then obviously if you're asking for my will, I'm going to do it. So make sure that your prayers are in accordance with my purposes. That's the request right there. I was, a long time ago, I always prayed, uh, in your name we pray, amen. And someone came up to me and said, aren't we supposed to pray in Jesus' name? And I'm like, whoa, 
Think about that. I guess I was subconsciously praying to Jesus, so I didn't feel like I had to say his name again, you know? But it was just kind of interesting point. I never really thought that through. I was like, huh. Uh, Obviously, it comes from this verse. And I would say in response to that, well, no, Jesus was not asking us to say abracadabra. You know, this wasn't a phrase you had to follow. It's a heart. It's about what you're asking for, right? That's the easy part. The hard part is, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will be able to do the works that I do and greater works than these. What? Okay, first of all, I can't do what Jesus did. I can't feed 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. I can't walk on water. I can't make the dead come to life. I can't help people who are invalids walk. I can't turn water into wine. Like all these things he did, I'm like, yay, son of God, you do your thing. Uh, And then though he ups it and he says, greater things than these you will do. And I confess, I don't quite understand this fully. However, the common, 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 you know, you open up any random commentary, like this is what they say, something to the degree of, well, what Jesus is talking about is quantity, Because Jesus was one person in one location, he could only do so much. But because his church is now, you know, it has billions of followers throughout history uh, and in every nation around the world, well, obviously we've way outdone the works of Jesus. And even just every little day things, add them all up, we are, you know, we're extending all of that. Maybe that's what he's saying. It's not necessarily a horrible interpretation. Uh, another guess would be that Jesus is saying, you'll notice he's talking in the present at one point. He says, uh, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Not the works that I've done, the works that I do. So I'm maybe thinking that what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to keep working. Just because I'm going to ascend back to the Father doesn't mean that my works are done. No, I'm going to keep working, but the way that it's going to happen in my absence is I'm going to work through the hands and feet of my followers because I go to my father, he says. So you ask for things in my name, I will do them in your hands and feet. I still don't know exactly how the answers are going to do better things than him, but that to me is at at least at the clearest level what he's saying. One thing we can take away from this is don't pray too small. Jesus did say that we are capable of incredible things because he goes to the Father. So let us not pray too human. Let us pray with all the belief in the name of Jesus that things could happen and maybe we are the problem that things aren't happening. So we'll leave it there. 15. Now he's talking about the guy that helps him on the way. If you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. So Pastor Chuck Smith has always done a great job at talking about the Holy Spirit in passages like this. And we see here the promise of another helper, and that's referring to someone who's of the same type. So the the spirit is Jesus's spirit. I mean, it's 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 another it's another helper, but of the same substance of Jesus. So we have God within us with the Holy Spirit. I'm going to send Him to help guide you. He's going to be your helper or your friend or your advocate. Uh, 
But presently, for the disciples, he says that he, the Spirit, dwells with you, like alongside you. When I go to my Father, then that Spirit will come in you. All right? We have the benefit of him living in us as followers of Jesus. The rest of the world has the Holy Spirit just kind of present, just with, alongside, convicting of sin and doing different things. But the Holy Spirit comes into the life of a believer. And this is the guide that we have helping us along the way. So Jesus gives us more clarification about the Holy Spirit's help in 18. I will not leave you as orphans. It's like Jesus, our leader, is going back to the Father, but he's not going to abandon us. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. I'm going to die and go to the Father. But you will see me because I live. You will also live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. What he's saying is the Holy Spirit's going to come into your life. That's going to be my return to you until, of course, his great return at the end of time. So I'm not going to leave you orphans because I'm going to be present in the Holy Spirit in your life. And that's why the world won't see me, but you will see me. Uh, In verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Well, Judas, not Iscariot, in other words, not the betrayer, this is the other Judas, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home in him via the Holy Spirit. So, Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. You understand this. Someone who is not walking with Jesus or following him or believing him and doesn't have the Holy Spirit thinks this is a heap of rubbish. I haven't seen Jesus. What are they talking about? It's an experience that when you follow Jesus, he gives you the Holy Spirit. And then you know, you have substance that he is real. Whoever does not love me, 24, does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Amen. That, that memorance of the, the teacher, the Holy Spirit, helps us understand the scriptures and helps us recall things. Sometimes people give up the Bible reading habit because it's not doing anything for me or I'm not understanding it. Valid, because, I mean, some of us just aren't good at reading. Let's face it. And this is high-level reading sometimes. It's like, what is he talking about? Especially Paul or Moses in the Old Testament. Oh, my goodness. Some of these arguments are deep, and some of them seem irrelevant. You're like, what is going on? But what if you treated the way you eat that way? well, I don't know the ingredients of this food, or I don't even remember what I ate a month ago on Friday the 13th. Like, so I'm going to stop eating because I don't remember anything. Oh, and I don't really understand how a candy bar is bad for me. I just don't understand the mechanics of how that works or ice cream. So 
Does this, any of this make sense? Should we stop eating because we don't understand how the food breaks down and helps us? Should we stop eating because we don't remember everything we've eaten? Of course not. The food is doing something to us, whether we understand, whether we remember or not. And so when it is, it is when we take scripture and we let it come into our lives, reading it with a listening heart, the Holy Spirit instructs it. Maybe not immediately. It could be down the road. And then he brings it to remembrance. And one day you're like, how did I know that? Or where did that verse come from? Because somewhere, maybe two years ago, you read it and the Holy Spirit said, let's bring that out of your filing cabinet. <laughs> Hebrews, uh, Proverbs 15 verse 1, use it right here. You know you have the Holy Spirit if you know what Proverbs 15.1 is. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. So 26 again. But the, Holy, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So Jesus specifies my peace, because there's a type of peace in the world that we're all looking for, but all it really is is a calm in the storm. One, one historian has said that peace is that brief moment in history when everyone stands around reloading. That's the peace that the world gives to us. But the peace that Jesus gives to us is where he takes all of the broken fragments of life and pieces them together. It's not only a cessation of violence or cessation of troubles, but it's also healing and restoring the things that violence and troubles have destroyed. Because peace is not just a momentary condition, but it is a restoration and is an eternal going forward from there. That's the kind of peace he's giving. The peace of God brings justice with it. So that those who are oppressed don't just have the oppressors go away, but they're lifted up to a dignified state where they should have been. Something like that. So he continues in verse 29. Am I? No, I'm in 28. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the father for the father is greater than I. Well, solve that with the trinity three and one they're all equal okay but the father is greater than i and now i've told you before it takes place so that when it does take place you may believe i will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming there is a divergence here is the ruler of the world satan or is the ruler of the world the authorities of rome Rome is the ruler of the world at the time. Rome does crucify Jesus. However, it's really a silly discussion because Satan uses the Roman Empire in this era to accomplish brutality. Rome's not the enemy. It's the perceived enemy. Satan is the real enemy behind the perceived enemy. I will no longer talk much with you. The ruler of the world's coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. And then he continues the sermon for three more chapters. So Jesus was good at the, we're done. Oh, wait, three more chapters of me talking. Um, we're going to have the worship team come up right now. 
I'm going to address one issue while they come up. I'm going to try to make this brief. You may not have noticed, but in verse 1, it says, Before the feast of the Passover, Jesus dies the next day, Friday. Now, this is much we know. All four Gospels say Jesus died on Friday. John says that too. But here's where they diverge. Matthew, Mark, and Luke say that this feast was the Passover feast. John says that this is before the feast of Passover. So in other words, the three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, see Jesus dying on Friday, and that Friday is Passover. Remember, the Jewish day starts at sundown. So the meal the night before is Friday, and then when the sun comes up and Jesus is crucified, that's still Friday. But in John's Gospel, Passover is not on Friday. Passover is on Saturday. So Jesus and his disciples are eating Friday, Thursday night, Friday, and he dies on Friday before Passover. It's a really interesting predicament. So here's what you do. You read commentaries, and you have to read a lot because half of them don't even address the issue. I'm not touching that. Um, but then you come to three possible answers. And this is just for the nerds, why so I saved it for the end. The first possible solution is that the synoptics are right. In other words, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they got it right, right? They're like, John got it wrong. Like he just misremembered the date or something. That Jesus died on Passover. The meal he had his disciples was the Passover meal with the lamb and the bread and the wine and everything. Um, the second view, oh, and they would say John did this on purpose to say that Jesus died before Passover to emphasize his theology that Jesus is the Lamb of God, so he's dying when they're slaughtering the lambs for the Passover meal the next day. So it fits that Jesus on the cross while the Passover lamb's being killed. It's a, it, John did that to just make a point. Uh, if you, you're, depending on your view of inspiration, that might ruffle your, your feathers a little bit. The second idea is that John is right. And that the synoptics, that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, simply misremembered the day because Jesus gave them a Passover-like meal. And then when they went to go write down their Gospels, they just remembered it as Passover, and it wasn't Passover. Again, if you have a high view of inspiration, that's going to ruffle your feathers. So there's a third option, and that's that, and this actually could make a lot of sense, that there were multiple Passovers during this time. And there's, here's why. Uh, Passover, the, the lamb was slaughtered the day before Passover. So on the 14th of Nisan, you would kill the lamb. And Josephus tells us that it was done between 3 and 5 p.m., two-hour window. This is based on Exodus 12, to kill the lamb at twilight. And that night, which would then become Passover, 15th of Nisan, you would eat that lamb that night. However, if the Passover is falling on a Saturday, which is the Sabbath, then you have to kill a lot of animals in a two-hour window and be all done by the time the Sabbath comes because you can't do any more work. And if you have pilgrims from all over the empire coming and Jerusalem's population is doubled, it is highly doubtful that you can get all those animals slaughtered in time before the Sabbath happens. So the idea is that they added an extra day of Passover beforehand so that you could divide it up like this. Judeans celebrated on one day, Galileans on another day. Gent uh, Pharisees on one day, Sadducees on another day. And what Jesus and his disciples were doing is that they were probably 
celebrating Passover a day early so that Jesus died on Friday, but not Friday Passover, Passover was Saturday. So he died when the lambs were being slaughtered in the temple as the lamb being prepared for our liberation. Hope you followed that. It was worth my hours of research. Um, (laughs) Nonetheless, it's still God's word.